0: From Timothy Dwight's Theology. Timothy Dwight, the late president of Yale College. Evidences of Regeneration. What are not evidences? Sermon 1. 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves? How that Jesus Christ is in you except you be reprobates? Having in a long series of discourses considered the doctrine of regeneration, its antecedents, attendants, and consequence, I shall now proceed to another interesting subject of theology, the evidences of regeneration. In the text, the apostle commands the Corinthian Christians to examine and prove themselves, and states the purposes of this examination to be to determine whether they were in the faith. He then inquires of them, "'Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, "'except you be reprobate, in the original, "'except you be unapproved, unable to endure the trial of such an examination?' From this passage of Scripture it is plain that it was the duty of the Corinthians to examine themselves concerning their Christian character, and that this examination was to be pursued by them so thoroughly as to prove so far as might be whether they were or were not in the faith, whether Christ did or did not dwell in them by His Holy Spirit." That which was a duty of the Corinthians is a duty of all other Christians. That which is a duty of all Christians, it is a duty of every minister to aid them in performing. To unfold the evidences of religion in the heart is therefore at times a duty of every minister, and to learn them that of every Christian. In attempting to perform this duty at the present time, I shall endeavor to point out first some of the imaginary evidences of religion, two, some of its real evidences, and thirdly, some of the difficulties which attend the application of the real evidences of religion to ourselves. First, I shall endeavor to point out some of the imaginary evidences of religion. By imaginary evidences, I intend those which are sometimes supposed to be proofs of its existence, but have this character through mistake only, evidences which may be, and often are, found in the hearts and lives, both of saints and the sinner, things on which it is dangerous to rely, because they do not evince in any degree either a holy or an unholy character it will not be expected that I should enter into a minute and detailed account of a subject which has occupied formal treatises and field volumes. Considerations of particular importance can alone find a place in such a system of discourses. To them, therefore, I shall confine myself, and even these I must necessarily discuss in a summary manner. With these preliminary remarks I observe, first, that nothing in the time, place, manner, or other circumstances of a supposed conversion furnishes ordinarily any solid evidence that it is or is not real. It is not uncommon for persons, and for Christians among others, to dwell both in their thoughts and conversation on these subjects, and to believe that they furnish them with comforting proofs of their piety. Some persons rest not a little on their consciousness of the time at which they believe themselves to have turned to God. So confident are they with regard to this subject, that they boldly appeal to it in their conversation with others as evidence of their regeneration." So many years since, one of them will say, my heart closed with Christ. Christ was discovered to my soul. The arm of mercy laid hold on me. I was stopped in the career of iniquity. I received totally new views of divine things. Much other language of a similar nature is used by them, all of which rests, ultimately, on their knowledge of the time at which they suppose themselves to have become the subjects of the renewing grace of God. There is reason to believe, derived, however, from other sources, that these apprehensions may sometimes be founded in truth. In other instances, there is abundant proof that they are founded in falsehood. But that which may easily be either false or true, as in the present case it plainly may, can never safely be made the ground of reliance, especially in a concern of such moment other persons appeal with some confidence to the manner and circumstances of their supposed conversion as evidences of its reality. Thus one recites with much reliance the strong convictions of sin under which he was distressed for a length of time, the deep sense which he had of deserving the anger and punishment of God, his disposition readily to acknowledge the justice of the divine law in condemning him, and of the divine government in punishing him, his full That he was among the worst of sinners, in the state of despair to which he was brought under the apprehension of his guilt. Of all these things, it may be observed that, although convictions of sin, generally of the nature here referred to, always precede regeneration, yet in whatever form or degree they exist... They are not regeneration. They cannot, therefore, be proofs of regeneration. He who has them, in whatever manner he has them, will, if he proceed no further, be still in the gull of bitterness. But the same person, perhaps, goes on further and declares that while he was in the situation of distress, when he was ready to give up himself for lost. God discovered himself to him as a reconciled God, and filled his mind with new, sudden, and unspeakable joy, that he had a strong and delightful sense of the divine mercy in Jesus Christ of the wonderful compassion of Christ, in consenting to die for sinners, in being willing to accept of sinners, and particularly in being willing to accept a so great a sinner as himself, that he found his heart going forth in love to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, to the word and ordinances of God, and to the church of Christ, and that the state of mind was new to him being constituted of emotions which he never felt before. On these things, therefore, he reposes, supporting evidences that he is a Christian. All this is, in my own view, a just account of what really takes place in the conversion of multitudes, and did it exist in no other case when undoubtedly furnished the very evidence he relied on without any sufficient warrant. The defect in the scheme lies in the fact that these very emotions are experienced by multitudes who are not Christians, that a person who has been the subject of extreme distress under conviction of sin and the fear of perdition should, whenever he begins to hope, that his sins are forgiven and his soul secured from destruction, experience lively emotions of joy is to be expected as a thing of course, and that, whether his hopes are evangelical or false. All men must rejoice in their deliverance from destruction, whether truly or erroneously believed by them. And all men who have had a distressing sense of their guilt and danger will, under a sense of such a deliverance, experience intense emotions of joy. All men also, who really believe that God has become their friend, will love him. All will love the word of God, who consider it as speaking peace and salvation to themselves." This joy and this love, it is evident, are merely natural, and are felt, of course, by every mistaking professor of religion. Love to God and to divine things is a delight in the nature of these objects, independently of any personal benefit to which we feel entitled from them another person places confidence in the greatness of the effects which his sense of sin and his hope of forgiveness produce both on his body and mind. He will inform you with plain consolation to himself that his distressing apprehensions of his guilt sunk him in the dust and caused him to cry out involuntarily, deprived him of his strength and for a time perhaps of the clear exercise of his reason, caused him to swoon and almost terminated his life, Much the same effects, he will also observe, were produced in him by his consequent discoveries of the divine mercy. These overwhelmed him with transport, as his convictions did with agony. The extraordinary nature, and especially the extraordinary degree of these emotions, furnishes this man with the most consolatory proof that he is a child of God. On this I shall only observe, that as these emotions may be and often are excited by natural as well as evangelical causes, so when thus excited they may exist in any supposable degree. The agonies and the transports, the agitations of body and of mind prove indeed the intensity of the feelings experienced, but they do not in the least degree exhibit either their nature or their cause, and cannot therefore be safely relied on as evidences of religion. A third person will tell you that while he was in a state of absolute carelessness, and going on headlong in sin, he was suddenly alarmed concerning his guilt and danger by a passage of Scripture which came to his mind in a moment, without any thought or contrivance of his own, and perhaps that, after he had long worried himself to find an escape from the wrath of God, another text of Scripture, also without any contrivance of his own, came as suddenly to his mind... Conveying to him bright views of the divine mercy and glorious promises of salvation, the reliance of this man is placed especially on the fact that these texts came to his mind without any effort on his part, either to remember or to search after them. He therefore concludes that they were communicated to him directly by the Spirit of God, and that they conveyed to him a direct personal promise of eternal life. This is mere delusion." Passages of Scripture and those just such as here referred to come often, suddenly and without any labor of theirs, to the minds of multitudes who are not Christians. And God is no more immediately concerned in bringing them to the mind in this case than when we read them in the Bible or hear them from the desk. What God speaks in the Bible, he always speaks and speaks to us, but he addresses nothing to us when we remember any more than when we read or hear his words. If we rely on the true import of what he says, we rely with perfect safety, but if we place any importance on the mode, in which at any time that which is said comes to our minds, we deceive ourselves. The whole of our recollection in these cases is a merely natural process, and is the result of that association of ideas by which memory is chiefly governed, and which brings to our remembrance in the very same manner thousands of other things, as well as these texts of Scripture, of which, however, as being of little importance to us, we take no notice. Other persons depend much on the regularity of the process with which their distresses and consolations have existed, and in the conformity of them to such a scheme and history of these things, as they have found in books or received from the mouth of acknowledged and eminent Christians. In the Sermon on the Antecedents of Regeneration I observe that this work is in its process almost endlessly various but in whatever manner it exists the manner itself is of no consequence should we have exactly the same succession of distresses and consolations experienced by ever so many of the most distinguished saints, and yet our affections, instead of being evangelical, be merely natural, the order of their existence could never prove that we were Christians, for we should still be sinners. The nature of these affections, and not the order, is a great concern of all our self-examination. Secondly, zeal in the cause of religion is no evidence that we are or "...or are not Christians. Men, we all know, are capable of exercising zeal in any case, in proportion to the degree of interest which they feel in that case. We also know that there is a zeal which is not according to knowledge. All persons, naturally ardent, become zealous about everything in which they are once engaged, and especially when they are opposed." Christians are zealous in the cause of religion, deists and atheists in the cause of infidelity, Jews in that of Judaism, heathens in that of idolatry. The Ephesians were zealous for the worship of the great goddess Diana, Paul and his companions for that of the true God, The Anabaptists at Munster, for the wild reveries taught by their leaders, and thus concerning innumerable others, nothing is more evident than that zeal was not in most of these cases any proof of piety in those by whom it was exercised. Zeal itself, so the degree in which it exists is no proof of vital religion. There have been multitudes of persons whose zeal has prompted them to court persecution. It is not uncommon for members of small and despised sects to believe that the sufferance of persecution is a decisive characteristic of the true Church of God. And And to solicit it is decisive evidence that they themselves are members of this Church. With these views they sedulously construe all the kinds and degrees of opposition which they meet into persecution. In Mm -hmm. this manner they regard the sober argumentation with which their opinions are refuted, the most dispassionate exposures of their folly and their faults, the most just operations of law, directed either against their crimes or to the preservation of the rights of others, Mm -hmm. Nay, nay, even that abstinence from communion with them in their worship, in that refusal to further their designs which they on their own part claim as indefeasible rights of man. Such persons ought to remember that all or nearly all classes of Christians, even those whom they most oppose, nay, that infidels and atheists have been persecuted and that the modern Jews have been more persecuted than any other sect, party, or people now in existence. The sufferance of persecution, therefore, is no proof that we belong to the true Church. Still, more ought they too remember that Paul has said, Though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. Thirdly, No exactness in performing the external duties of religion furnishes any evidence that we are or are not Christians. Few persons have been more exact in this respect than the ancient Pharisees, yet Christ has testified to them that they were a generation of vipers. Under the Christian dispensation, great multitudes of the Roman Catholics, notoriously profligate in many parts of their conduct, have in various periods of popery, been remarkably punctilious in the performance of these duties. That which was no evidence of Christianity in them cannot be evidence of Christianity in ourselves." MANY PERSONS ARE EXACTING THIS CONDUCT FROM THE INFLUENCE OF EDUCATION AND EXAMPLE, MANY FROM HABIT, MANY FROM THE DESIRE OF RELIGIOUS DISTINCTION, MANY BECAUSE THEY THINK THIS CONDUCT A PROOF OF THEIR PIETY AND ARE UNEASY WITHOUT SUCH PROOF, MANY BECAUSE THEY THINK THEMSELVES IN THIS WAY ONLY IN THE SAFE PATH TO SALVATION, AND MANY FROM OTHER SELFISH REASONS. In all these things, considered by themselves, there is no religion. Of course, the conduct to which they give birth cannot be evidential of religion. Fourthly, no exactness in performing those which are frequently called moral duties furnishes any evidence of this nature. Multitudes of mankind place great confidence in their careful performance of these external duties as being evidential of their evangelical character, just as other multitudes do in those mentioned under the preceding head, and with no better foundation. Justice, truth, and kindness in their various branches and operations are so important and useful to mankind that we all readily agree in giving them high distinction in the scale of moral characteristics. Those who practice them uniformly and extensively are universally considered as benefactors to the world and as invested with peculiar amiableness and worth. Those who violate them, on the other hand, are, from the mischiefs which they produce, regarded as enemies and nuisances to the human race. At the same time, a high degree of importance is given to these duties in the Scriptures. They are greatly insisted on in the gospel, inculcated in many forms of instruction— commended in the most forcible language and encouraged by most interesting promises. The violation of them is condemned and threatened in the most pungent terms and under the most glowing images. It cannot be surprising that, influenced by these considerations, parents should make these duties a prime part of their instructions and precepts to their children. But when we remember that the practice of them has, in all ages and in all civilized countries, been considered as equally, and as indispensably necessary to a fair reputation, and to success in the common business of life, we shall readily suppose that these must be among the first things imbibed by the early mind from parental superintendence, and must hold a peculiar importance in all the future thoughts of the man." Thus taught and thus imbibed, we should naturally expect to see them practiced during the progress of life, as extensively as can consist with the imperfect character of human beings. When thus practiced, and especially when eminently practiced, we cannot wonder to find those whose lives they adorn regarded as persons of real virtue and excellence. What less can be expected? These are the very actions towards our fellow creatures required by God himself, and dictated by evangelical virtue, a part of the very fruits by which the Christian character is to be known. Why isn't he who exhibits them a Christian? Oftentimes also they appear with high advantage in the conduct of persons, distinguished by natural sweetness of disposition, peculiar decency of character, amiableness of life, dignity or gracefulness of manners, and thus become delightful objects to the eye and excite the warmest commendations of the tongue. It is not strange, therefore, that they should have gained a high and established reputation, and should be extensively regarded as unequivocal proofs of an excellent character. What others so generally attribute to them we not unnaturally accord with, whenever our own case is concerned, in finding that we are believed by others to be Christians, on account of our good works of this nature, readily believe ourselves to possess the character." We We are esteemed, loved, and commended by those around us, and cannot easily believe that the worth which they attribute to us is all imaginary. Still, such a performance of these duties furnishes no proof that we are Christians... For, in the first place, they may be, and often are, all performed from the very motives mentioned under the last head, as being frequently the sources of exactness in the external duties of religion. Secondly, they are often performed by men who violate, extensively, or grossly neglect, the duties of piety and temperance, and who, therefore, are certainly not Christians." Thirdly, they appear to have been all performed with uncommon exactness by the young man who came to Christ to inquire what good thing he should do to have eternal life, yet he lacked one thing, and that was the one thing needful. Fifthly, No degree of sorrow or comfort or fear or hope experienced by any person about his religious concerns at seasons succeeding the time of his supposed conversion furnish any evidence of this nature. Sorrow springs from many sources beside a sense of our sins, and from such a sense it may be derived and yet not be the sorrow which is after a godly sort we may easily and greatly sorrow for our sins because we consider them as exposing us to the anger of God and to everlasting ruin. Our comforts also may flow from other sources besides those which are evangelical. Some persons derive great consolation and even exquisite joy from a belief in that whether well or ill-founded of their acceptance with God some from the apprehension that they are eminent Christians, some from the unexpected influx of religious thoughts and passages of Scripture coming suddenly into their minds, some from what they esteem peculiar tokens of divine goodness to them, tokens which they regard as proofs of the peculiar love and favor of God, some from what they term peculiar discoveries of the glory of God and the excellency of the Redeemer and of the joys of the blessed in heaven. All these, they consider, as immediately communicated by God to themselves, because they are his favorites among mankind. There are, there are also other states of mind in which consolations are experienced from other sources, consolations which may exist in high degrees, but which are too numerous to be mentioned at the present time. What is true of the sorrows and comforts excited by religious considerations is substantially true of the kindred emotions of fear and hope. These can also arise both from true and false apprehensions, and can be either merely natural or wholly evangelical or of a mixed nature. As they actually exist in the minds of men, they are, to say the least, often undistinguished as to their real nature by those in whom they exist, and are, I believe, many times in a great measure undistinguishable. Their existence is so transient, they are frequently mingled with so many other views and emotions, and the eye of the mind is often so engaged by the objects which give birth to them that it becomes extremely difficult to fasten upon their true character. Sixthly, no evidence of our sanctification is furnished by our own confidence. The truth of this declaration may be easily seen in the fact that multitudes feel the utmost confidence that they are Christians who afterwards prove by their conduct that they are destitute of Christianity. All enthusiasts usually confide with undoubting assurance in the reality of their own religion, and generally pity and often despise men of a humbler and better spirit, because they do not enjoy such peculiar discoveries, such delightful exercises of devotion, such bright hopes and heavenly anticipations of future glory as of themselves. The Pharisees boldly said, God, I think thee that I am not as other men, or even as this publican. Yet he was a worse man than the publican. A collection of the Pharisees said to Christ, Are we blind also? I propose hereafter to consider at some length what is commonly called a faith of assurance. It will be sufficient to observe at the present time that I believe some men to be really and evangelically thus assured. If this be admitted... As it undoubtedly will be by the great body of Christians, it follows, of course, that confidence on our good estate is no proof that we are not Christians. A man may confide with sufficient evidence, he may also confide without it. It is plain, therefore, that his confidence, considered by itself, furnishes no proof that it is well or ill-founded. I cannot, however, do justice to my own views, nor, as I believe, to the subject, without observing here that in ordinary cases I entertain a better opinion of the modest, doubting, fearful professor than of the bold and assured one. The life of the former, as it seems to me, is commonly at least more watchful, more careful, more self-condemning, more scrupulous concerning the commission of sin and the omission of duty, more indicative of dependence on God, more inclined to esteem others better than himself, more declaratory of the spirit of little children. The spirit of the latter, even when he is admitted to be a Christian, appears to me to be often fraught in an unhappy degree with self-exaltation, with censoriousness as well as contempt of those who differ from him, with uncharitableness, with peremptoriness of opinion, and with an unwarrantable assurance of the rectitude of whatever he believes, says, or does. These certainly are not favorable specimens of any character." I would be far from ultimately condemning the profession of all those in whom these things are more or less visible, yet I assert without hesitation that their light would shine more clearly before men were it not obscured by these clouds. It is not the degree of confidence, but the source whence it is derived, and the objects on which it rests, by which its nature and import are to be determined. It may exist in the highest degree without any religion... And religion may exist in very high degrees, at least without any confidence. Seventhly, the belief of others that we are Christians furnishes no proof of our Christianity. All persons who make a profession of religion, and many who do not, whose lives at the same time are exemplary, scrupulous and unblamable, are by most charitable persons believed to be Christians— Some of these, however, beyond any reasonable doubt, are not Christians. Some we know to have lived in this manner and to have sustained this character both in ancient and modern times without a pretension to vital religion. Judas was believed by his fellow apostles for a length of time, and not improbably without a single doubt to be a true follower of Christ." Hymenaeus and Philetus appeared to sustain the same character, and apparently with as little foundation. All of these were believed to be Christians by apostles, inspired men, a singular understanding in subjects of this nature, yet these men were deceived." No words are necessary to prove that we and all others are liable to deception in similar cases. If the belief of Peter and Paul that the objects of their charity in the cases specified were Christians was no evidence of their Christianity, then the belief of others that we are Christians is no evidence of our Christianity. Application From these observations we learn first that we ought to exercise the utmost care and caution in examining the evidences of our own religion. How many professors of Christianity have considered the things which I have specified as decisive proofs that themselves were good men? "'Yet if I mistake not, it has been clearly shown that all of them united furnish no solid evidence of this fact. "'We are just as liable to be deceived as others, and unless peculiarly guarded by the very same means. "'Others have rested their hopes of salvation on these things as proof of their religious character, and have been deceived. "'If we rest on them, we shall be deceived also. "'For we may possess all these things, and yet not be Christians.' In a case of this moment, nothing ought voluntarily to be left at hazard. We are bound by our own supreme interest, as well as our duty to God, to fulfill the command of the text, to examine, and to prove ourselves whether we be in the faith. And in doing this, to make use of the best means in our power to fasten, with as much care as possible, on those things which the Scriptures have made tests of a religious character, and earnestly to pray to God that we be not deceived either by ourselves or by any others. Secondly, From the same source we learn also the impropriety and folly of making these things the foundation of our judgment concerning the religious character of others. Whenever we determine that others are or are not Christians, because they exhibit these as evidences of their Christianity, we are plainly liable to gross error concerning this subject." All these things may be truly testified concerning himself by a Christian, and with equal truth by a person destitute of Christianity. They are, therefore, no proofs of his religion or irreligion. Still a great multitude of professing Christians, many of whom I doubt not are really Christians, And all or nearly all enthusiastic professors make these very things, or the lack of them, the foundations of their favorable or unfavorable opinions of the religious character of others. They resort to them as to an acknowledged and scriptural standard which they do not expect to find disputed, and to question which would not improbably be regarded by them as a proof of irreligion. What is still more unhappy among various classes of Christians in this country, these very things, particularly those mentioned under the first ground and fifth heads of this discourse, are, if I am not misinformed, not infrequently made the objects of a public examination of candidates for admission to Christian communion, and the foundations of a public judgment concerning their religious character, to be able to remember the time when convictions of sin began with their attendant distresses, and the time when they were followed by hopes, consolations, and joys, to have had these occasioned by the sudden, uncontrived, and unexpected influx of certain passages of Scripture into the mind, especially if according to a pre-established and acknowledged scheme of regeneration among themselves, these things have taken place in a certain order of succession, still more especially if the sorrow and consolations have risen very high, and most of all, if they are succeeded by distinguished zeal about things pertaining to religion, are boldly pronounced ample evidence of the candidate's piety. In this manner, there is reason to fear multitudes are miserably led astray, both by being induced beforehand to labor that these things may be truly said of themselves, and by settling down in a state of security on this false foundation afterwards. Nor is a case less unhappy when persons rest their hopes on their exactness in performing the external duties of religion and morality. Yet vast numbers of mankind repose themselves on these, is on a bed of down, and feel satisfied that God will not finally condemn persons who have labored so much in his service. All of them will, however, find in the end that to such as have done all this, and nothing more, one thing is lacking, an interest in Christ, a thing without which they cannot be saved. Thirdly, we see the danger of being strongly confident in the piety of ourselves or others. All or nearly all such confidence, so far as I have observed, has been derived from these supposed evidences of religion, any part or the whole of which may be possessed by men totally destitute of Christianity. It is a fatal mark on them all that the Scriptures have nowhere alleged them as proofs of religion." As they are not scriptural proofs, they cannot be sound. To trust in them is to trust in a nullity. Accordingly, those who give the fairest proofs of Christianity in their life and conversation never make these things the foundation of their hope, and are very rarely found to be strongly confident of their acceptance with God. To pronounce boldly that others are Christians is in many cases at least equally hazardous. There are many persons, however, who roundly declare others of whose lives they have had little or no knowledge to be Christians, and others not to be Christians, whose conduct and conversation give them at least a fair and often fairer claims to this character. Nay, they will peremptorily make these assertions concerning ministers of the gospel, and pronounce some to be sanctified and others unsanctified, from a sermon or a prayer, or even from the tones of voice with which they are uttered. Judge not, saith our Savior, that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. Who art thou? Saith Paul, that judgest another man's servant, to his own master he standeth, or falleth. It, is, it is sufficient to show the impropriety and rashness of these unwarrantable decisions that they are founded on no scriptural or solid evidence. They are generally built on the very things exploded in this discourse, or others of still less importance, all of which, united, go not a single step towards proving a religious or an irreligious character."